Welcome to the Pacer Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Strength and Conditioning at Edinburgh Rugby, Ashley Jones. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 32 of the Pace Performance Podcast. So today we've got Head of Strength and Conditioning at Edinburgh Rugby and Ashley Jones. So a really interesting chat with Ashley, obviously someone who's been in the industry for God knows how many years. So we discuss strongman exercises and how they can be incorporated into an SNC program for rugby. Uh, SNC for amateur rugby players, uh, prioritising the essentials and how much is actually enough for these guys. Off-season conditioning for rugby and power training for rugby. We also get Ashley's thoughts on testing and a little bit on how we can use that data to inform future programming. So it's a really interesting chat with Ashley. But before we get going with the interview, just want to say that the Pacey Performance website, the new site, is up and running. So that's still the same at paceyperformance.co.uk. So there's a little bit more information on there. There's a resources page which details all the information on the products from the guys uh, that have been on the podcast previously. So Jason Weber, um, Keir Wen and Flat, all these kind of guys, uh, all their products are in, in one space. There's also some books that I've read recently, um, so you can get a little bit of a review on what I think to, to certain books that have... Um, that I've had the pleasure of reading. There's also some blogs and uh, resources that I check out uh, at least weekly, so you can have a little um, a little peruse of that and sit and uh, get on the links and, and try them for yourselves. There's also uh, different ways to listen on the on the new site, so you can listen through the site itself, and you can listen through YouTube as always and iTunes as always. There's a couple of links at the top of the page. So if you do get a chance to leave a rating and review, there's a link at the top of the page which will allow you to do that. So again, thanks a lot for your support of the podcast and here is the interview with Ashley Jones. Hi guys, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today I've got Ashley Jones on the line. So just before I introduce Ashley and get into give us a bit of detail on his background and education. Just want to uh, say thank you to Ashley for his time uh, and welcome him to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thank you very much, Robert. It's a great pleasure to be here. No problem, mate. Do you want to give us a bit of uh, information on your background, your education and what you're currently doing? Well, basically, I consider myself to be an educator. Uh, at the present point in time, I work in strength and conditioning for the uh, Edinburgh Rugby Club. Recently arrived uh, in the UK, December 28th was touchdown point and... Uh, uh, just for the interview and decided to uh, not even go back to New Zealand where I was currently based and, and stay on. So uh, it's been a great first uh, two months and very enjoyable. But uh, historically wise, I've worked in uh, three professional sports, uh, basketball, rugby league and rugby. And I've done rugby primarily for the last uh, 15 years, both in Australia, New Zealand, Japan and now the UK. Uh, so I guess that's my my major area of uh, expertise these days is physical performance training for rugby. Uh, I uh, was a teacher originally, high school teacher, uh, physical education and mathematics, primarily because back in those days, uh, being 54 this year, back in those days, uh, there was no other avenue to go into sports other than uh, physical education teaching. Obviously now there's a wide range of educational areas that you can specialise in. Uh, but realised very, very quickly that uh, I didn't want to teach people who didn't want to be taught. So uh, basically went on and uh, the first opportunity I got to be involved in professional sport, uh, took it and uh, have tried to progress ever since. So if you don't mind me asking, how, when, what year was that when you got into the professional scene? First professional job was 1992. I was okay. 31 years old. Cool. So what was, the, what was the state of strength and conditioning as you saw it then, looking back now? Um, I was with basketball initially, so um, basketball in those days was characterised by most of the conditioning was done on court, so most of the conditioning was scrimmage-based. So we tried to do a little bit of off-court conditioning and uh, a little bit of weight training, and it was more sort of keeping body and soul together as far as the players was concerned rather than 
uh, a really performance enhancement type uh, program. And in that particular year, the, the team that won in Australia was uh, a team called the Melbourne Tigers. And they did no strength and conditioning per se and just scrimmaged for two to three hours a day. And uh, I think that set back strength and conditioning and basketball in Australia quite a few years because uh, the players uh, just thought that all you needed to do was scrimmage. Um, rugby league was the sort of professional sport that um, had professional strength and conditioning coaches. And in its infancy, there was um, obviously quite a few good ones, but quite a few poor ones. And I guess uh, I've used a phrase, preferential bias, uh, to describe people that program from their own experiences, their own preferences. And I think that was rife back in those days. I think good strength and conditioning coaches probably start there and evolve to put their own preferences aside in, in regards to what the players and team actually needs of, as where they are as uh, individuals as far as their training age and injury history and position they play and, and basically that entire individualization of uh, uh, training within a team sport, which I, I consider to, to be the holy grail of uh, programming these days. Mm-hmm. No, I like that. I like the like preferential base. Um, so who was, your, who was your first rugby league team that you got involved with? The uh, Newcastle Knights. Okay. And what was the, were you kind of their first or one of the first kind of SNCs coming in at that time or was there kind of a bit of a, a culture coming uh, behind you? Not really. I was the first uh, full-time strength and conditioning coach. They, they had a gym owner who was the strength and conditioning coach per se on an amateur basis, part-time basis, and a couple of very well-meaning amateurs running the, the, the fitness programs. Um, but they had no one sort of that uh, specialised in that at that time. And the culture there, Newcastle back in those days was a very blue-collar, hard-working uh, sort of town. It was a, the home of the, the uh, BHP Steel manufacturing organisation in Australia and uh, a lot of mines around that area. So the, the players themselves more or less all came from that area. Uh, very good, strong work ethic, very good uh, very good characters. And um, I guess moving in there was uh, a bit of a dream job to start off with. Plus, I had a famous coach from the UK as my head coach, uh, Malcolm Reilly, who uh, okay. was a phenomenal uh, buy for the Newcastle program at that particular time. Malcolm was a, uh, a great leader of men and, and I know first rate that people would actually die for Malcolm rather than... Uh, uh, not give their 100% effort and face him on the sideline after the game. So how has your practice developed since 1992? I guess that big thing, as I mentioned earlier, about the individualisation has been my key focus for the last probably decade and, and trying to <clears throat> get better at doing that uh, year in, year out. It's, um, I guess I've taken a lot of aspects from uh, business mentoring and leadership programs and things like that. They've talked about that uh, square with the one, two, three, four in it where uh, management level one is like um, a very dictatorial uh, area where basically I decide and you have no input. And then level two is we'll have a discussion, but I've still got the the deciding vote and the deciding factor. Uh, Level three is primarily that uh, we discuss and then actually you decide what uh, you see fit. And level four is basically you decide and I'm here to facilitate anything for you and and answer questions for you. And I guess if you're with a program long enough, you tend to move from from level one through to level four, in some cases more quickly than others with individuals. But uh, I had eight years at the Crusaders in the Super Rugby tournament and I guess um, being with players like Richard McCaw and Daniel Carter and... uh, uh, Greg Somerville and people like that for that extended period of time, you develop a level of trust in, in the programming so that uh, you might initially be more a level one, two where you make the decisions, but those players know their bodies far better than you'll ever know them. And uh, I think leaning more towards that level three, four, although in some instances, the more experienced player often likes to be told what to do rather than have another thing on their plate to actually consider. And implementing a level three, four program into an organisation that's operating at level one and two is absolute chaos. And, and so you need to, to I guess, fill the water first and, and see where individuals are. And I guess this is why I call it the holy grail because it's it's a work in progress and, and some players prefer just to be told straight out, you're going to do this, this and this, and you're going to do it at that time, that time, that time, and you're going to lift those weights with uh, those reps and they're the exercises we're prescribing for you. 
whereas others want a real um, input in it. And some players just cannot do certain movements. So you basically have to set up a, I think the first thing I do is set up an exercise chart on the wall or, or develop it with, with, the, with the players and with the staff that I have, listing down all the possible permutations for exercise selection across different categories and to basically one-on-one -on -one interview with the players and work our way through the movements that we want and uh, see if they can actually physically do them. And that's a lot of talking with the physiotherapist as well and deciding amongst the, the team approach um, what's going to make this person a, a better rugby player rather than a, a, a better person performing the squat or the snatch or whatever exercise uh, people like to program. Uh -huh. So you'd put that on the wall with the player and then get the physio involved and they would basically inform you you know, how they feel about the exercise, if they've done it before, what they're like, is it, you know, anything, any restrictions or anything like that? Is that, is that what you... Exactly you, right. I okay. guess um, there's no use, um, no use programming a, a snatch or a, a split jerk or a push press in those particular movements if the player has a history of uh, labral uh, tear-related problems in the shoulder or reconstructed shoulders. And uh, there may be uh, much better exercises that they've found that can still still perform certain movements but uh, minimise the risk of injury recurrence and also keep them training and improving. Mm -hmm. Cool. So just, just moving on to um, kind of exercise selection, one of the, the points that I forwarded across to you was about um, strongman exercises in, in rugby. Uh, I know you'd written a I think a little uh, article on it for Elite F FTS. So I'll put the I'll put a link uh, up to all your articles for Elite FTS uh, on right. the on the show notes. But is this something that you actively program strength strongman exercise into your S and C program uh, for rugby? And if you do, um, when and how? Initially, I used uh, strongman training back in 1997 when I was with the Parramatta Club, uh, we had access to a couple of uh, big wool bales and we had some of the, the baling claws that they use and, and we used it as a, as a pulling type movement in comp competition with mini groups, mini team groups and things like that. So um, I've had a fair history of utilising it. I've, I've seen it become quite fashionable over the years. Uh, I think it's um, it's a tough one to... Uh, get ideas of improvements on. Um, obviously, time factors and things like that could be one that can be utilised. I've always used it as more a, a strength endurance uh, type protocol, especially for my uh, my bigger guys in, in groupings that uh, I'd classify into the red, uh, red group or a special victims group that uh, <laughs> may uh, be substandard in their metabolic conditioning elements and uh, incorporate that as one of the the areas to utilise it. I primarily use it in off-season. Uh, it's it's quite demanding and quite physically uh, tiring. So as far as the in-season protocol is, it's very difficult unless you've got some lay days and uh, you can perform it early enough in the week to, to get over it and also obviously get over the game from the previous week as well. But uh, probably don't use as much as I, I used to in the past. Um, I, I do think it has a place. Uh, it's just uh, programming it and, and looking at the group you've got and the elements that you can actually use. I was fairly fortunate with the Crusaders that we had a company called Get Strength in uh, Auckland, New Zealand that uh, manufactured a lot of uh, strongman gear and a lot was uh, uh, bespoke type uh, um, equipment manufacturer as well. So if I had any ideas, they'd put it together and then we'd get first uh, trial of it to see if there was any bugs in it. So we got to use a lot of their equipment uh, in our programming and the program we probably decided on more so was um, either a 60 seconds on or a 30 seconds on and then a 30 seconds recovery um, on about 10 different exercises and working through about 30 to 45 minutes of programming on that particular strongman circuit. So it's um, it's quite demanding, as I said. It's um, I still think it's a wonderful type of uh, protocols to use because obviously uh, barbells give you uh, more or less a one-dimensional factor, but uh, the strongman training gives you a lot of core stabilisation, uh, rotation movements and uh, handling different shaped objects, which is obviously what you do in a game situation. So what, which specific exercises have kind of stood the test of time in your program? Um, I think the uh, anything that you can lift. I'm a big fan of Dan Johns. So anything that you can lift and carry, anything you can squat, anything you can push over your head. Um, I quite like the the uh, steel log. We still, well, in past programs, I've uh, 
cause use that as a, a core movement for overhead and uh, rowing and bench pressing and uh, military pressing. Um, <clears throat> the Samson's wheel, uh, Samson's wheelbarrow, and also Conan's wheel, uh, where you uh, zercher the bar into position and then uh, uh, walk around in a circle. That was quite good. And a lot of use of kegs and uh, stones in previous programs. So, as I said, I've just arrived here, so I'm just working through budget issues and bits and pieces to, to get what I need to develop the program I want in, at Edinburgh. But uh, they're things I've used in the past. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Very interesting. So just to move it on a little bit, um, strength and conditioning for amateur rugby players. Have you had much uh, exposure to kind of working with this these kind of groups and what would if you if you were to work with this kind of groups what how would you prioritize the kind of essentials that they should be doing and what might a week look like for these guys who have got jobs um and working around family and things like that definitely i actually worked with my my club that i grew up playing for in sydney uh the warringah rats in 1986 good name good name Great team as well. Great <laughs> Northern beaches of uh, Sydney, you can't get much better. Uh, so they were very um, unprofessional as far as they uh, uh, didn't get paid for the job and basically turned up two nights a week and played on Saturday, as, as most amateur players would do. But um, also in Japan, the, the team I worked for, Panasonic, had about uh, a squad of 40, 43 players, but 25 of those were uh, company employees. So... They had to uh, do gym work in the morning and then go to work during the day and then come back and do the rugby and conditioning-related activities in the evening. So it was a semi-professional program in that regards. So I think the, uh, the key elements is, um, is fitness and strength is uh, secondary in the amateur game because I think it's quite easy to uh, go out and go for a run. In those areas, I really prefer like a fartlek type training program where you can actually go for a run around a golf course or, or very pace run over different terrain in, in cross-country areas. I think you get more bang for your buck in doing in that sort of regular running uh, two or three times a week in getting ready to, to start your uh, off-season training program or your actual uh, rugby-specific training uh, than any form of uh, conditioning games, which we'd probably more use in the professional area. Oftentimes, the, the skill levels aren't, aren't good enough in the amateur game to allow you to perform the conditioning game for long enough to get a conditioning benefit from it. Uh, in professional sports, I'd always try and use uh, conditioning games as a major uh, part of the conditioning program. But um, that sort of style running, since um, for, the, for most of the players, is, uh, is probably more beneficial and they can actually put that in, in around their work or school programs quite easily. As far as the strength training program is concerned, I think uh, you want uh, bang for your buck exercises that you don't spend all day in the gym. And I, I think I'm, a, I'm a, still a huge believer in the pull-push-squat scenario where you pick an exercise, which is a, a pull-based movement for the upper body, um, say chins, rows, that type of movement, a push-based movement, bench press, incline, push press, and then a squat movement. And I think if you were to, to list different exercises in each of those three categories, you'd probably find that by using those three, you cover over 80% of the muscles used in the sport. And then any sort of uh, prehab rehab that you needed with previous injury history would, would go a long way to create a fairly solid program, which you can could do three days a week and basically get in and out inside of 45 minutes. So I, I, I'm still a firm believer that if the session goes longer than an hour, you're making friends, you're not building size and strength. So you need to sort of keep it short and sharp and keep the intensity levels up. Uh, and that goes uh, a long way to actually getting the results done quickly. Mm-hmm. So for the, for the guys that you said at Panasonic in Japan, they were training uh, Tuesday, Thursday, playing on a Saturday. What extra things would you be uh, expecting of them on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday? Uh, basically, playing a Saturday, I'd like them to do their own recovery on a, uh, a Sunday. We'd give them ideas of what to do. Um, obviously, it's a lot more structured in a professional environment. But um, ideally, if they've got access to a pool or um, some form of low-intensity exercise for um, half an hour or so to do on that Sunday after the game, which would be ideal. Um, the Monday would be we'd probably allocate them some sort of circuit to do or uh, a light jog or some sort of conditioning work that would um, – allow them to continue the recovery process but also to um, tick along areas which they needed specifically to do so, be more an individualised 
approach to that, so uh, giving different groups different uh, ideas. Tuesday, Thursday is obviously with us. Um, Wednesday tends to be a, a recovery day, so uh, it could be uh, dependent on need is probably the best way to, to approach that. So, again, uh, trying to add that individualization program into the, into the uh, non-professional players as well. And then Friday becomes a, a, a basically a, a stretch. Uh, some players would actually come in and do some some light power works uh, power work uh, just as a finisher, but um, <clears throat> wasn't great necessity for it. But again, a good stretch and uh, in preparation for the game on Saturday. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like a great situation that you've got the the kind of employees that are going to be on site. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming the gym and the um, every all the facilities are going to be there as well. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, the actual um, their office is um, probably only about twenty minutes away, so it's, it's quite convenient. A lot of the programs in Japan, uh, the gym is actually in the field is actually in the corporate ground, so uh, uh-huh. uh, they don't have much uh, travel involved at all. Uh-huh. So were they kind of expect were they were they uh, recruited to work for Panasonic and get involved in the rugby, or were they just employees who could play rugby? I think initially there was employees that could play rugby. Okay. Um, but I think the the top league has come so far in the last 10 years that it's more a recruitment process from universities that they recruit rugby players that uh, can fit into the company ethos as well and uh, recruit the individuals that can add value to the corporation but can also add value to the rugby team as well. And uh, they have tightened the overseas import rules as well so that only two players at a given time can actually take uh, be on the field uh, in the games so sort of um, some teams have five or six foreign players that uh, they can utilize but again only using two at a time on the field but uh, other teams have gone away from uh, importing foreign players and basically say no we'll we'll keep it Japanese um, they tend to be more the, the lower level teams in that competition but uh, they tend to also have a higher a number of uh, non-professional players in that program as well. Mm-hmm. So for, from a more traditional kind of uh, English point of view, where you've got an amateur club or semi-professional club, obviously everyone's got different jobs, electricians, teachers, you know, scattered around the local area. How would you kind of create the, that culture and that environment where they're expected to do their own thing on a Monday, a Wednesday and a Friday? Just from speaking from a football point of view, when I used to play uh, kind of a similar level to that, if you asked the lads to do something on, the, on their own on a Monday, Wednesday, and a Friday, you'd get a look like you've asked them for a kidney. Yes. Um, but I don't know, obviously it's going to be, I know it's going to be slightly different in rugby, but how would you kind of create that environment and get that buy-in for them to do their own thing on them days? I guess the first and foremost, I, I really value uh, one-on-one interviews and and uh, input from the player himself because the more input they have, I, I found that the more compliance to the program that we'll actually get. So in saying that, if we can get five or six guys that can, at a close by, can get together and do some in uh, a group situation, it's going to be a lot easier to uh, to do that than uh, do it by yourself. So I guess first and foremost, getting to know the individuals, where they work, how far away they are from each other, what their plans are, whether they're single, married, and all those sort of uh, details that you really got to got to know about, so that you can actually put some things on, some ideas down, and then basically say, well, this is available. Um, I'll be here at such and such a time. If you want to come and do something, we can actually do it with ball in hand. Uh, if not, then there are these opportunities on on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, I would do it that particular way because um, I think that's the important thing to to get the buy-in of the individual. Uh, as you said, rugby, I've never worked with football, so um, I've only heard stories about uh, uh, the cultures uh, that pervade those particular uh, that particular sport. But uh, I think uh, rugby tends to be that more um, group dynamic, which I think people uh, get a lot more stimulus out of working together. So I think that's um, a key to potentially getting people to come in, uh, do their work in groups and, and have a bit more fun about it as well. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It's all about communication again. I think so. Again, I think the only the, the two things I learned in teaching uh, way back when I did my initial training was uh, communication and organisation. And uh, that if you can nail communication and organisation eighty percent of the time, then uh, you can always bring someone who's got more knowledge about a subject area. You can actually obviously 
go to the internet and find. You can you can listen to podcasts. You can do other things to to get the knowledge base that you may not actually have. But when you can communicate it and you can organise it to the to a, a standard which is leaves not a lot to be uh, taken apart, I think you eighty uh, percent there at least. Uh-huh. I agree. So just moving on again, um, off season conditioning for rugby. Uh, I'm just going to uh, draw your attention to um, an article that was on Free Lap USA. You might have read it last couple of days um, from Dan Baker about or on Dan Baker's work about using MAS for uh, off season and pre season work. How would you prioritize? Um, you know what what work is required in the off season. Um, and what would the kind of focus be for that period of time? Oh, definitely. Um, well, you can't go much better than Dan Baker. Uh-huh. Uh, he's the uh, best strength coach, uh, conditioning specialist in the world, I would say. Um, a little bit biased, obviously, being Australia. So, uh, Of course, look out for your own. Look out for your own. <laughs> he's definitely one that uh, can hold his place in any, any company. So uh, his work on MAS and the article – that I've read on his website, um, one of his free articles there was uh, probably should be standard reading for everyone. Uh, big believer in the MAS myself. Um, I tend he do, he uses a 1.2 kilometre uh, time trial test, I believe, from memory. But I've used a 2.4 in in the past, and and that's my tends to be my gold standard first test of uh, returning groups. So um, I have certain standards for uh, various uh, positions. Uh, and also this 2.4 Ks equates to the old 1.5 mile test that there's so much literature in the aerobic area from the Coopers Institute available that uh, I found it's a pretty good test to use with very, very good scientific backing. The reason why I like that as well is that um, even if someone's on absolutely nothing for the four to six weeks that they're away from you for the beginning off season, uh, they can still complete the 2.4, even they have to walk it. So and it gives you an idea of where people are immediately. People can need to go fairly hard from the from the get go to to get a good score. But if you've got someone who hasn't done a lot, they can still jog around the track, and at least you've got a time to to start programming from. So from there, you can get your MAS scores, and and I do a lot of repeated speed work, working on a, a forty seconds on, twenty seconds off uh, um, scenario at one hundred and ten percent of their VO two max um, in regards to that average meters per second to run that two point four. And I've got basically good tables floating around, and I'm sure Dan's got some in his research as well, that uh, I can pinpoint the uh, distances that players need to be running from a, a, a beginning point to an end point so that we have uh, some range they can actually work to get to uh, and use that as a, as a base to uh, run. I also like the, the MAS rec- rectangles where you have a, uh, a work effort and then a recovery effort all on the same time zones, either some at 10 seconds, some at 15 seconds, some at 20 seconds, uh, and they're continuous for four to five minutes. So uh, 10 seconds on, 10 seconds uh, recovery, then 10 seconds on, working in a rectangle all based around MAS uh, distant, uh, scores as well. Uh, and then a lot of uh, on-field conditioning-based work as well with the um, particularly great drill that Malcolm really introduced to me way back in 1995, 94. Uh, his Malcolm drill, which is a, a down and up type drill with backpedaling, probably more applicable to rugby league, but uh, uh, very, very good for rugby as well. It gives you a, a pretty good indication of where a player's uh, overall down and up and uh, backpedaling ability as well, and also uh, accelerations involved as well. Uh, but that would be my start point. And after I have ascertained where a player is based around their fitness scores, that would be whether a person gets selected into a more metabolic approach where they do a lot more uh, conditioning work or they go more into a, a neural power group, which is more about speed training and uh, accelerations and explosive activities, um, and then basically program from there. Mm-hmm. So do you want to give a bit of a detail on that, um, on that second group you mentioned there? The neural power group? Yeah, that's the one. I um, For that particular group, if they've – if they've attained a particular target on that 2.4K, which I, I think is most appropriate, irrespective of their position, doesn't matter if they're a prop forward or a, or a fullback, um, I think they can actually move across and, and do a lot more quality work rather than uh, quantity work okay. in that area. So um, the metabolic group might be doing five metabolic sessions or five metabolic days a week, 
whereas the uh, the power speed strength group, I would get their conditioning via conditioning games uh, straight away so that they'd only do one or two conditioning game sessions a week, so more a game sense, ball in hand, uh, small-sided games, which obviously gets a metabolic effect, but it's, it's more about uh, uh, transfer, transitional work into the actual sport itself. And they spend more time on uh, acceleration training, um, med ball work, um, sled drags, prowler, uh, prowler sprints, and, and that side of things, combined with I run a program called a Speed Power Combo, which uh, we do as a, uh, a combination acceleration, more acceleration speed work, uh, so sled sprints, uh, uh, starts over 10 to 20, 20 odd metres, anything probably out to 30 to 40 metres, and then um, some footwork drills, some ladder work and uh, uh, mini hurdle work, and then go back and do, a, a, say, a modified Olympic lift, say a, a power snatch from hang or a clean push press or just a clean, and we go back and forward between those. I wrote an article years ago called The Rule of 24, which based around the ideal number of repetitions being 24 development of strength and power, and um, how you make that up is your own requirement based around percentages so that uh, you could actually do eight sets of three equaling 24 total reps and use a weight um, around 85 plus percent. Or if you went back to more, uh, say, the conjugate style with uh, Westside, using, say, eight sets of three at, um, say, an increasing percentage of uh, acceleration work, say, 50, 55 and 60%. So depending on where you're come research-wise, uh, working on those percentages to get what you require, whether it's... Uh, Attempted acceleration with a much heavier percentage of maximum or uh, bar speed based on velocity-based um, velocity, velocity -based training and things like that. Mm -hmm. So where was that article published? Uh, let me see. Um, there was probably one in the last two years at uh, EliteFTS.net. Uh, okay. I'll just stick the link up, that's all, so people can have a little look. Yeah, I think it's, um, I've been – was honoured to, to have my first article published there in uh, – January of 2013, and uh, they've, they've published probably about 20 to 25 of my articles ever since. So um, there's a there's a fairly good selection, I think, of uh, philosophy-based and, and programming-based articles there that uh, people can access uh, free of charge. Mm, cool. So you just mentioned sled work there. What is your what are your thoughts on the kind of weight that should be going on that sled, and how would you vary that depending on your, the goal of the session? I tend to vary weight depending on distance, so um, I tend to go a, a heavier load. I know what the, 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 the speed specialists talk about, uh, the loading has to be a, a certain percentage of body weight so it doesn't actually interfere with uh, transition into the actual sprinting activity, uh, but reality is that my sprinting guys, um, probably 90 plus percent of the time ends in a collision, so they're they're probably in a acceleration position nearly all the time. Uh, so the weight, I tend to get up to quite heavy loads, probably even 50% of the individual's body mass, and that might only be to over 10 to 15, 20 metres, whereas uh, as, the, as I use it for my, say, top-end speed guys, it could only be, say, 20 kilos on the sled itself and um, getting out to 60 metres. So it's usually – and you usually do a – a nice uh, potentiation type activity with that as well where you could actually do a, a set of power cleans and then go straight into a set of sled sprints and then back and do something else. And, and that actually potentiates each other quite nicely, similar to the speed power combo, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, so what kind of weight would you be looking on the power clean? Um, again, I would probably go light and fast. So I'd probably looking at uh, between 60 and 70% and looking at uh, between three and six repetitions. Okay. Interesting. So, I mean, you obviously mentioned Olympic lifting there, uh, which is the next point. So, nice little segue into that. Um, so, power training for team sports, uh, in, obviously in particular rugby, is Olympic lifting going to be absolutely essential um, for, for your SNC program in rugby? That is a great question. That's one <laughs> that I often get asked. Um, I guess I had a preferential bias with Olympic lifting and probably not being – a great Olympic lifter, but really enjoyed the sport and I enjoyed the movements myself. Um, <clears throat> but I love what uh, has been said uh, about uh, we're training rugby players, we're not training uh, Olympic weightlifters. So I don't think Olympic lifting is essential. 
uh, and I'll probably create uh, some heresies by saying that. But um, I think obviously it's one of the best ways to to uh, get a massive acceleration of the bar in a very short period of time. Uh, great for rate of force development. But uh, some players cannot just perform the movement. So I think you need to look, again, this individual approach. Uh, some people can't rack a clean. Some people uh, can't uh, finish a snatch because of shoulder-related problems or they've got one shoulder that won't actually lock into position correctly. So I think people jumped on the Olympic lifting bandwagon and, and remembering that the, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, of which I'm a member and have been uh, a CSCS for uh, over 25 years, um, was all initially started by old Olympic lifters. So it has had that preferential bias since day one, but I think it's evolving somewhat over the last few years in that um, the triple extension is what we're trying to achieve through the ankle, the knee, and the hip. It's it's how you get that triple extension and how you train it, which is more important than the actual uh, exercise itself. So I think um, you can get a triple extension by, by doing box squats. Uh, correctly. You can get a triple extension by uh, some sort of jump-related uh, squat movement, uh, by uh, a sled pull, by a prowler push. So, um, again, it's just working with the individual uh, player or individual athlete and seeing what, what they can do, um, how quickly they pick up uh, skills. And Olympic lifting is, is a complex motor skill and uh, it does take time to perfect. If you're an amateur athlete and you're concentrating on, on getting stronger to play rugby, maybe you just don't have the time to uh, devote to a, a, skill, a more skilled performance in the Olympic lifts, whereby you benefit more greatly from uh, learning how to squat properly, which uh, takes uh, less time to learn than to um, perform a snatch correctly. Um, in saying that, I, I still include a, a category of Olympic lifts in all of my programs. Uh, not everyone does Olympic lifts. They tend to be more for that neural group, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, they might be used as a primer for hypertrophy. They might do um, like a, a light, fast set of snatches and then go into heavy deadlifts as, a, as like a, a contrast uh, a potentiation type uh, movement. So um, they have their place, definitely. Um, whether they should be used by everyone all the time, no. I uh, think they don't. I think, uh, as Louis Simmons has said in the past, that Every, every exercise and every program works, but they don't work for, forever. So, uh, and they, you have to find the one that works best for you. So how would um, jump training and plyometrics fit into your into power training with the guys that you're working with? Um, a key ingredient I use a lot for contrast training. Uh, so they might perform uh, an Olympic movement and then go to a, a set of box squats um, in that particular area, we might do some of that speed-power combo where instead of doing a, a uh, power-based exercise, they might do uh, jumps instead and then go out and do some accelerations. So a lot to do with potentiation and activation, um, <clears throat> both uh, primarily lower body plyometrics but also some upper body plyometrics with uh, med balls and uh, um, uh, clap push-ups and crossover push-ups and things like that on top of the med ball looking uh, primarily at uh, using that as the contrast and as the explosive element within the program. Mm -hmm. You mentioned med balls there. What, how are you incorporating med balls into your, into your program? What kind of exercise you're looking at and why, you'd, why, why you would stick them in there? I quite like the, um, the contrast that med balls give you. I mean, uh, I've used uh, uh, like a scoop toss with uh, a med ball so that they, you get – Full release height of the the med ball and acceleration of the limbs and the and the lower body in in one continuous action. I guess the what the Olympic lifts don't give you is that uh, a lot of people actually tend to decelerate at the point where you should be uh, continuing the acceleration as much as possible. Um, I remember years ago uh, listening to people talking about the uh, Russian weightlifters where they would perform a snatch in in an area which had either a high ceiling or outside. Where they'd actually let this let the bar go at the uh, the completion at the top of the movement, so you've got that full extension of the body, and uh, you often often hear Olympic weightlifting coach finish the pull, finish the pull, which um, a lot of people actually try and get under the bar too quickly, and they actually don't finish that full extension. So to actually release the bar at the top of the range of motion, 
you actually get that continuous movement. So I think that's what med, ball give, med balls give you. And if you use that as a contrast to uh, uh, either a, a, a push press or a, a cleaner push press or something like that, you actually get a great transitional movement as well. And then combine that with a, a short acceleration sprint, then you're um, got uh, you're covering a few bases in, in the in the, a couple of different movements. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. We're coming to five minutes, so I don't want to keep you for uh, too much longer. Oh no, you can you talk for me as long as you like to, because I'm enjoying uh, the, the talk chat. Cool. Let's keep going then. I'm happy. So, so testing for rugby uh, again, uh, harping back to your elite FTS uh, articles. Um, testing for rugby and how the data is going to inform your future programming. So how would you um, choose the testing battery that you're going to use with your players coming back from um, the off-season? And how would that kind of, obviously we're collecting loads of data, but how would that inform your program design? I think, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, 2.4K time trial test is the one I do first and foremost because I think it's the safest test to do uh, under the assumption that some players have done more than what you wanted, some players have done less, and, um, and some players might have done nothing at all. So they can actually at least register a score. I don't like doing any speed testing or any maximal strength testing uh, at all in the initial phases because I think the, uh, the chance of injury is, is quite high in that particular um, area. Uh, strength testing in general, I, since my program tends to go down to, to heavy doubles and heavy triples on a regular basis, uh, we actually I don't actually test for strength. I use a, an estimation of 1RM based off my 2RM and 3RM loads uh, by simply putting them into the appropriate formulas and, and generating those, which I found to be um, above 95% accurate, So, which is, which is good enough for me. Uh, to ensure that uh, players are working at the correct level of intensity without sort of uh, uh, having an issue as far as potential injury is concerned when they want to go for that extra couple of kilograms on a, on a 1RM lift. Uh, same with speed, with speed testing, we uh, tend to have our testing gates or our speed gates out at every speed training session throughout the throughout the year. So we're accumulating data on, on that as well and uh, – I guess the most important thing with speed training is that you are getting towards maximal velocity on your sprints, uh, so that you actually are training speed by running fast. You can't get run, you can't get fast by running slow. So um, they're more uh, sort of ongoing uh, monitoring, if you like, rather than actual testing. So I think that's that's a key to the, to the programming that I utilise. With the uh, utilisation of um, probably more and more GPS monitoring, I guess, uh, you're getting so much data from uh, sports scientists that uh, often it's it's hard to to know which pieces of data to use in, in programming. But I guess I really like the, the metrics associated with the, uh, the amount of high-speed running that's been done and uh, use that as an indicator whether someone needs a bit of a top-up as far as uh, training is concerned. Uh, the total distance that someone might do in a session <coughs> Uh, is also an important factor for me. The uh, mechanical loads or body loads, from depending on which uh, uh, company you use, the uh, accumulation of uh, accelerations and decelerations and changes of directions are, are quite important as determining a loading factor on um, particularly eccentric loading and uh, potential DOMs and associated areas. And also the uh, collision data we get from from games is is very important as to to monitoring uh, how much contact the player is getting in game-wise and also at training, and also the level of loading that uh, players are getting overall from games. So we tend to, to get a lot of data in, in that and give a um, more or less a subjective score based on uh, what they've actually done in a game. We, we tend to say that uh, uh, the engagement of a tight head prop in a scrum is basically 10 out of 10. You can't get any more contact than a, a tight head uh, engaging in the scrum. So um, if they were to do a combination of uh, uh, five, uh, eight scrums and, and five resets, that's uh, 13 engagements. So he would score 130 points for that. And obviously first arrival, second arrival, and third arrival at rucks and also tackles and uh, carries and things like that, which uh, accumulates to sometimes a score over, over 500 points. And that will give us an indication of what levels of uh, uh, contact that a player has achieved over time, which can give us influences on how we program them for the first couple of days of the week coming back from that game as well. The, um, I think the um, important thing with the GPS, and I, there's a great story told to me by a friend of mine in Dublin that uh, uh, GAA is using you know, GPS quite a lot these days and 
a sports scientist was sitting next to the head coach on the bench and a sports scientist mentioned that uh, uh, number 17 player has, uh, you need to take him off. He's uh, basically only had five possessions in the last 20 minutes. And the coach, who was more of an old school coach, uh, looked at him and said, well, his name is Seamus Murphy and he deserves to be called Seamus. I don't care what number he is, his name is Seamus. And by the way, do you know what he's actually done in those five possessions? And the uh, scientist said, no, no. He said, well, he's got, he scored three goals too. He's actually basically the difference between us winning this game and losing at the present point in time, so he's staying on. Thank you. Uh, so I guess um, we have to be careful looking at just the data and uh, being uh, sort of uh, cut away from the reality of the game itself. So... But I think a lot of people obviously are using it correctly. Over the first few years, there was just so much data uh, being spewed out and some of the pivot tables that you actually got uh, would go on for kilometres. So it's, um, I get more and more uh, benefits associated with uh, utilisation of the GPS and even more so combined with heart rate data to, to give a better idea of where players are, what they've done in the game, what they've done in training and, and um, how they need to be topped up um, in specific areas and probably more importantly as far as my perspective is is uh, coming back from injury and using them as markers to uh, gradually improve uh, rehabilitation into performance so that uh, we know where they are and uh, at what stage they can come back into to full training and then uh, playing in. Uh-huh. Early on that little um, little piece you men- mentioned uh, using timing gates for your sprints or any sprint training you do you got the timing gates out Yep. What kind of uh, are you looking at percentages uh, decrements before you kind of call it a day? Um, are you looking at um, a point something of a second before you know they're they're getting fatigued and they're done? How are you how are you working that out? We probably well, the last wee while we've just been doing it as a um, a monitoring tool, and we probably only get them to go through the gates two or three times in the okay, course okay. of the session. So it's more just to to look at um, if someone's dropping away. And so that we can actually see that very quickly rather than wait five or six weeks and retest someone through the gates and say, oh, geez, he's, uh, he's considerably slower than he was six weeks ago uh, and ask why. So I guess we're doing that so that we've got um, a week in, week out uh, idea of where a player is. And um, I've also enjoyed using them over the last couple of weeks to, to actually look at uh, what actual potentiation some of that speed power combo training is uh, giving to our players and uh, it's actually uh, starting to show some some benefits with certain indiv- individuals. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, I have, I'm have i coming up to 45 minutes, so I'll tell you what we'll do. I will um, – you've got a couple of things out that are advertised on late FTS. Is it, am I right in thinking there's, there's a book there? There's a book, uh, yes, uh, that – EliteFTS.net have um, greatly uh, put on their website. It's uh, Engineering Physical Performance. Uh, it's uh, an ebook, which is available on their website. If um, people would like to look at that, that's um, a combination. It's, it's a little bit biographical in, in details, particularly so earlier years, but uh, a lot of programs that I've used and uh, uh, no pictures, just information. So um, if you're looking for a picture book, it's not going to be the one for you. But um, hopefully, there's a, uh, at least one or two things in there that might. Uh, um, get you to think a slightly different way or uh, to, to use to, to some performance improvement. Cool. I'll put a link up to that as well on the uh, on the site so people can check that out. So where can people keep in touch with uh, what, you got, what you've got going on, apart from Elite FTS, of course? I guess that's the best forum for me. Um, I guess it's uh, because I've hopefully got uh, a few more articles in me. They'll be published on a, a probably four- to six-week week basis on EliteFTS.net. So uh, there's a comment section in there that people can um, to contact with me. I, I try uh, very hard to, to answer every, every uh, person who puts a comment up there. Uh, sometimes if it's a quick and easy answer, I, I can get it pretty quickly. If it takes a little bit more thought, it might be a week or two until I get back to someone or depending where I am in the season, how much time I have. But uh, I think that's the best. Um, I've been... Um, Honoured to give a, a talk at UK SCA this year coming up in August, or late, late July, early August, I believe it is. So uh, looking forward to for doing that one. That's always been uh, one of my um, bucket list type uh, things to do is to speak at one of these major European or United States uh, conferences. And um, receiving the offer a couple of couple of weeks after I arrived was uh, quite a surprise and, and quite an honour. So what's the, uh, what's the discussion going to be on at the UK SCA? 
Um, I think they're holding it, but it's to do more with the individualization uh, of, and transfer of training uh, from my experiences. I'm not a sports scientist. Um, I, I have a master's degree, but I would never ever call myself a sports scientist because I think it's, it's such a detailed specialist area. Um, as I said right at the beginning, I'm, I really see myself as an educator and, and I, hopefully I can use elements of sports science to, to get the messages across uh, to people. And um, if I need any sports science, I, I tend to have a, go, a few go-to people that I speak to to get that information from. So just as a matter of interest, who are them go-to guy people? <laughs> go-to people, sorry. Uh, um, well, I'm, I'm, I read Brian Mann's articles quite a lot yeah. in, in the US. I think Brian Mann is one of the best writers and, and tends to um, to tell things as they are. Uh, Robert uh, Robert Smith, I think, is the other guy. I think it's the first name's Robert. Um, also very, very good uh, in uh, calling a spade a shovel and uh, getting his messages across fairly succinctly. Um, Fergus Connolly. Uh, is, to my liking, one of the foremost sports scientists in the world of uh, professional sport, currently uh, employed by the San Francisco 49ers, um, but has worked in rugby over the years. Uh, and uh, he's probably my best go-to. Um, and Dr. Craig and in Australia, and for the Clive Duncan. Uh, Craig Duncan is uh, the other one. Craig is uh, works for... Um, uh, football in Australia uh, did some great work with uh, the, the Socceroos and uh, over that over the last few years as well as uh, with Sydney Sydney football and uh, he's another uh, brilliant mind as far as uh, sports science is concerned if you get access to any of their data and, and websites and uh, uh, chats uh, yeah, I think you can't go wrong mm-hmm. I had Brian Mann on the podcast as well so chat oh, out where oh, he's uh, I've yet, yet to meet him I hopefully uh, I'll meet him at NSCA at some stage or someone. Yeah, sure. But uh, he's uh, he's a genius. Yeah, certainly is. It was a great episode I did with him a couple of a uh, couple of months ago now. So, yeah, that's excellent. And I um, just want to say thank you very much again for your time, and obviously point people towards the towards the website and all the all the links that you've mentioned will be on there with regards to your elite FTS articles and stuff like that. Very so, great. thank you very much. Um, any time that I, I have a chance to sit down and chat to people, uh, it's just a joy to me that people want to actually um, have a chat. So uh, it's um, it's marvellous that um, I can uh, have a speak. Uh, can I speak to different people and uh, and uh, hopefully people can sort of benefit from one or two of the ideas that I have and uh, make uh, make sports people better performers. No, it's been a pleasure, and thanks to Tom McLaughlin for uh, making the link as well. Oh, excellent! Much yeah, he's a, he's a great bloke. Yeah, definitely. Right, mate, I will um I'll keep in touch and thanks again for your time and I will speak to you shortly. Much appreciated, Robert. Cheers, all the very thanks, mate. The, um, you too, mate. Cheers. Thank you, bye, bye. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode thirty-two of the Pace Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Ashley. It's great to hear from someone who has been in the game for such a long time and with such great experience from all over the world. So as I mentioned in the intro there is the new site, the new Pace Performance site at pacedperformance.co.uk and as I mentioned before, all different ways to listen to the podcast to make it easy for you to get the information. There's also all the links that Ashley mentioned in this episode on the, on the site. So if you just go over to the Ashley Jones page, all the, all the links will be about halfway down. So thanks for listening and I will see you in episode 33.